All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Creating Structure podcast. Thanks for listening and for all the great downloads and uh, sharing in the good episodes. Today, I have my special guest with me today, Sean Blott from Jordal USA. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Such a pleasure, and thanks for agreeing to be on. Um, I uh, am always grateful for guests to come on. And, you know, you said something to me prior, and um, I just want every guest thinks, why, why in the world would I be on the show? But every guest has way more to say than they think they do. So I'm really glad you agreed. <laughs> So, Sean, um, tell us where you're from, what your background is, where you work, and let's just let's get into it here. Yeah, thanks. Um, actually, John, I'm a Canuck. I was, I was born a Canuck and uh, out in Western Canada and uh, grew up there. Um, enjoyed myself, had a great uh, upbringing there in the mountains of uh, Calgary, Alberta area. Went to school there. And um, actually, I uh, got my uh, business degree there in, in Calgary and started developing my career in sales. So I um, got married in Calgary, started a whole life there, and uh, began my career in the um, retail business of all places, hmm. and then developed it from there. Uh, you've already provided some interesting tracks here. So what's... So what school did you go to in Calgary? It was called Mount Royal College. Mount Royal College. Yeah. Okay. I've heard that it tends to get a little cold sometimes in Calgary in the winter. Is that an understatement? <laughs> that That is not an understatement. Um, there's, a, there's a difference in winters. Uh, it's a difference how people relate to the cold. Uh, cold in, in where I came from is like minus 20 below for three weeks straight. Yeah. Where you, you, if you put your hands out the side of the car, you're going to freeze your fingertips off. I've never been to Calgary, but I'm fascinated by that. It's 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 kind of the West, right? Like there's also a lot of ranches and horses and all those other things in addition to the mountains in the distance. Am I right about that? Yeah. Some of, uh, of your listeners may have heard of the biggest outdoor show on earth, the Calgary Stampede. The Calgary Stampede. That's it. That is the that is the the biggest rodeo in the world. So you uh, so let's bookmark this for a second. So you were born and raised in Western Canada in Calgary, Alberta. You went to school there. You graduated with a business degree. Got married there. Started in retail. Um, first of all, how long were you in retail? And then how in the world did you wind up getting into construction products and in, into the United States? Uh, retail was just uh, a beginning sort of entry into me into the workforce. Uh, I always uh, gravitated to tangible things to sell, things that I could see and touch. And uh, manufacturing and construction really lends that itself to that type of sale. So over time, I, I gradually developed into different types of sales until I landed in what they call the um, stud welding business. And that's a very unique business. Um, a related product would be if somebody had heard of the word Nelson stud. And it's used heavily in construction and embeds. Mm -hmm. So I got into that business and enjoyed it very much for, for 10 years. Hmm. But then I did a, something a uh, little interesting. I jumped out of it and I went into the uh, water business. To the water Drink, business. Drinking water. Now, I only tell you that story because um, it led to me taking a move and then moving on to something else and leading me into staying in touch with one of my previous presidents of the companies I work with in Canada who moved to the United States and thought that, hey, would you like to come and move to the United States and get back into the stud welding, manufacturing, construction business? Okay. And that's kind of how it all happened. And that happened in 2000. Year 2000. Okay. So I had the opportunity to move to the U.S. And that kind of takes back to the schooling because in order to do that, I had to get a... Um, 
a quality uh, degree from a university in the U.S. So I, I have a, um, a business degree from the University of Southeastern University of uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Really? <laughs> and what's interesting about that, I have a degree and I'm on record, but I've never been there. Because it was all remote? It was all remote. Well, that must have been an early remote university then. No, it wasn't. It's a full-blown university, but they, that was just, I had to get an equivalency. And so they took my degree plus work experience and made an equivalency degree, not made it. They just said, you're equivalent to a business degree here at the University of Fort Lauderdale. That was actually where I was first supposed to go. And my transfer was to Fort Lauderdale, but it ended up being Ohio. Uh, that'll be fun to talk about from, from Western side of Cleveland instead of Fort Lauderdale. Hmm. So, uh, by the way, so this will be in the show notes, which I don't usually talk about till the end, but so for many of our listeners will know you because you're pretty well known and visible in the curtain wall and cladding and anchoring arena, that world. And you attend glass, the glass show and you attend different shows. Uh, so Sean works for Jordan USA. Um, and so we're going to talk about embeds and inserts and stuff. I want to circle back on the Nelson stud welding, because when I started in the curtain wall business, there was a very few choices. Um, and then we'll get back to your path here. And, uh, I've been working with Nelson studs for a long time, you know, D2L bars, H4L studs, you know, they're pretty prevalent in, uh, continuous edge of slab screed, you know, poor stops, um, fused them in many, many applications, overhead applications, um, floor applications, edge of slab applications. So that's interesting. Did you actually work for uh, Nelson Stud for for the that whole group, or did you work for a, a subsidiary or a sales agency? Well, I, I I should clarify that, John. I actually worked for their biggest competitor. Oh, you did. <laughs> and who was that? Stud welding associates at the time in Ohio. All this stud welding industry was concentrated. In Ohio, I see. It was, it was like the like the car industry is concentrated in Detroit. That and that's how I ended up in Hawaii. Or I mean, in Ohio was that the that concentration there. My my original path to Florida was just to run a sales territory for a bit, and it didn't happen. I just ended up coming back and being a sales manager there. Okay, I want to go back to before you came to the states because you you are um, in sales. You. You've spent a lot of time in sales and a lot of people undervalue the retail experience. You said you like to sell tangible things. How much time did you spend in retail and did you learn anything in selling consumer products in retail that translated or does it all translate to our space? I learned something very valuable in selling drinkable water. And this goes back years ago when nobody even considered that they would drink bottled water. And at that time, I was selling uh, purification water systems to retail stores where the purifier would be in the back of the room where you couldn't see it and the water dispenser would be at the front. And the idea was that people would come in and fill their own bottles of water and take it home. This was really in the infamousy where people would say, you, you've got to be kidding me. People are going to buy water. But here's what I, what I, my approach was. My approach was, well, hey, you've got to taste this water. It's delicious. Hmm. Mr. Store Owner, you're going to love this water. I love this water. Your people are going to love this water. And he'd drink the water and say, well, it's not doing much for me. <laughs> and he, and he, I, had to, I had to convey the message, well, we're, we're going to sell it to your customers. And what I learned most importantly about this whole thing was I wasn't really selling water and the, the owner wasn't interested about the water. The one thing I learned and well, I just about everything is understanding what I was selling and to a retailer, you're selling profit. And with a retailer, it says, how much profit can I squeeze out of the smallest piece of square inch possible? I see. It's, a, it's always a battle to get, you know, skew space, shelf space in a retail store. So what ended up happening is once this once the store owner said, you know what, I can make I can make 25 cents a gallon and I'm you know generalizing here on a on a on water, and all I do is have this distiller in the back. 
purifying water all day and all I'm doing is paying for power and people are going to come into my store and they're going to be repeat business and I'm going to keep making profit. Once I understood what I was selling, but not water, but profit, that's when I changed my whole approach of how I was selling the customer. So what I learned most is how to understand what you're really selling. It's not necessarily the product. What's the customer perceives is he's going to gain from it. In this case, it was all profit. Boy, that is such a great story, such a great lesson. This, in the end, oftentimes it has very little to do with the product. You know, right? We're selling profit, we're selling convenience, we're selling right. esteem, right. we're selling value, we're selling right. something into a space. Did you have two constituents? Did you have the consumer who was actually purchasing, or, or was your focus all just a hundred percent? If I got the guy on profit, the store owner, he would do the deal with the water. Did you have to do anything else? Well, as a company, that's where the marketing came in. So we had a sales part that I was in. The marketing part was once that owner invested in that system, we had to give him the marketing tools to bring his customers into that store and become the big word loyal, loyal to the water. I love it. Yeah. And that's really, we all know that in anything that we do, all of us, we want, we're, you know, we're looking for some loyalty. We want to earn that loyalty. So the only thing the customer had to do was, set his system up in a way that he could get a good display in the store. And we provided marketing tools like coupons and signs and free testing. We'd send people in there, give taste tests. What we wanted to do was develop the consumer taste because they were buying the taste now. The owner was buying the profit, the consumer was buying the taste. Boy, so that's so good. They're drinking brown water out of their sink. They're going, wow, this is great. And that's kind of how we did our job. So there was two sides of it, the sales and the marketing. That's that's fascinating. I think there's a lot of takeaway lessons. You said you learned one key thing, and the key thing you learned was focusing on what it was you were selling. I like that so much. So that obviously translated. So now uh, let's fast forward then ahead again. So um, I want to get into your work now, but you're still talking about your path. So you, you moved to the States and I think I kind of interrupted you at that point. You said you brought up the piece about the water, I think, because it reconnected you to a, an old boss and then you eventually got to the States. And so when you came to the States, what brought you here again? Was it the construction industry? Right. So the stud welding business that I was in, that I got out of to do something just crazy different, just to sort of expand my horizons, which was this water, was then the same business that the president in Canada I worked for was now the president in the US and he brought me into the US to go back into the stud welding manufacturing construction business, yes. And was that this, the, the company that you mentioned, the stud welding company, that was the company, right? Well, it was now, the company that I actually was hired for in the United States was actually a supplier of the studs to the company I worked for in Canada. I see, interesting. Now I was working for the big boy, the big manufacturer in the US, North America. Do you think that the stud, I mean, I live in the Northeast Ohio, Cleveland area, like you do. Um, do you think that the stud and stud welding industry was so prevalent here because of Lincoln Company and just that whole uh, rich development, research, R&D, production? On it? Does it date back to that or aren't you sure? My, you know, I never really researched it, but my best guess is if you drive down the street and you see McDonald's, you usually see a Burger King mm -hmm. and a Wendy's mm -hmm. and whatever. Nelson Studwalling was the first people in this business, and they were based in Ohio. So what it seemed logical to me is typically with a major company like that, people leave and they start their own business. Sure. You go, not far from home. Well, and for a long time, of course, some fact checkers will check me here, but um, I think I won't name any of the fast food places. At least one fast food franchise's strategy was find out where McDonald's thinks it's good to put your place and then find a spot as close to them as possible. Save the research. But anyway, um, I, I think it probably does date back to Lincoln Arc Welding and the whole chronology and development because yeah. I, I think Nelson Studd was a group or a division of that. And it actually, there's a relationship to structural engineering for all the structural engineers and architects listening because uh, Omer Blodgett, this, this, there's a famous, it's a blue book. I remember when I was out of school, I, I was amazed it only cost me $12 and school books were so expensive. But 
um, the structural engineers listening will will smile and resonate. Blodgett is like the de facto book on practical structural uh, engineering applications and calculations on how to analyze welds as a group, welds mm-hmm. as a single line. You know, tank. They've got a great section in there on tanks, bins, and hoppers. Before I discovered Rourke's formulas for stress and strain, I used it for um, some panel systems and stuff. So there's a lot of history here in Northeast Ohio in studs and welding and that whole genre of engineering. Yes, there is. It goes back decades. It does. It does. Actually, Lincoln Welding was one of the best companies in the world. Um, I don't know what it's still like, but I know men and women that worked on the floor at, you know, in the plant, you know, you'd hear stories, they would get 50, 60, 70, $80,000 bonuses uh, at the end of the year. Okay. Let me reel myself back in here. So talk about your work now. So you, you were in the stud business. How did, how did that lead to, to Decon and Jordal and into this embedded uh, strut business? Okay, so then when I when I got here in 2000, you may remember there was that real great peak of business between 2000 and 2006. Remember that real crazy boom we had? I do. And 27 kind of slowed down and then 28. And at that time, the company that brought me here were bought out by an entity out of the UK. And things changed. I, I still had my job, but I felt that, that, that the company was getting very big. And another business associate that I had worked for for years, who was the owner of Decon, I've known him for years, offered me a position. He was going to bring Jordal anchor channels into the United States and Canada in 2009. Hmm. Because I knew him and I'd actually worked for him uh, for some time before, I thought it was a great opportunity and I took it. So okay. from there, I went from the stud welding business into the anchor channel business. But the correlation is it's all construction, all manufacturing. You continue to stay in the industry, just a different side of it. So when you say in 2009, you went into this anchor channel business with Jordal to bring it to United States and to North America, it would, does that mean from Germany, from Europe? Is that where you brought it from? Correct. Jordal is a global company based out of Berlin. They had presence all over the world, but none in North America. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a history as well between the founders dating back generations of Halfen and Jordal, is there not? It goes back a hundred years, that's for sure. And a Josef Halfen and Andres Jordal Andres Jordal did invent the anchor channel in 2000 or 1913. You know, back then they were just developing it for manufacturing where they were still using you know, belts and pulleys and wheels and steam engines and things like that. And they were an embedment just to hold all these structures into place to hold all these belts and wheels and things. And, and yes, they, they, it goes back that far. And then um, as many things happen in business, Partners. I don't know if they were partners, but they split off, and then there became Joseph Helfen with Helfen and Andres Jordal with Jordal. Very interesting. So the, they shared the same common roots back at the development of the product. Okay, so so now you're with Jordal in 2009, are you, and you're telling me that prior to 2009, there was little or no presence for Jordal in the United States. Yes, that's correct. Zero, none. That's pretty impressive because it's 2021, last I checked, and uh, that's only 12 years. So this sounds like you were stepping into an entrepreneurial um, build-from-the-ground-up venture. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, uh, John, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was, yes. I mean, that was it. <laughs> here's here's your sample case. <laughs> yes. And, and here's some business cards. And um, go Jordal. So talk talk about that. Talk about this space in this context. I, I mean, I think it's fascinating. Many of our guests have had um, 
a background with a larger company and then gone off on their own or gone off to start a new thing with somebody else. And so you are a groundbreaker, clearly coming at this from a sales background. So what, what is the space in these concrete answers? What is the space like? Um, how challenging has it been to build from the ground up? Maybe that's the first question. How challenging has it been to build from the ground up and to introduce the product? Well, one of the things, it's challenging, but one of the things that can make the challenge, um, I want to just say um, doable or workable, is the people that back you. And um, when Decon brought Jordal into North America, they had a very, very good structure, some very good management. Um, and so they were able to see the vision and understand what needed to be done. And this wasn't, I wasn't going to give them a sale in 30 days. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a lot of support behind me. Good, good support in terms of understanding what this was going to take, because as uh, John, you're aware, not only is this a product that is tangible as in the channel and the T-bolt, but there's a lot of engineering that goes in behind it. Mm -hmm. so you've got two, two things going on at the same time to be able to move this product in the market. So the biggest challenge, of course, was to get the engineering community to accept a product they've never heard of into the marketplace because the risk factor in anchor channels, it's, it's there. I mean, mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, there's a big problem. So there was a, a lot of time spent in terms of developing the softwares and the engineering, et cetera, to get us accepted into the marketplace before we can even start selling the product. Or at least, to, so you know how it is in sales, John? You get the early adopters. These are the people that'll take a little bit of a risk and, and say, okay, you know what? We'll give Jordal a try because you know maybe you've got something to offer that we're not getting. You know, and then you at the back end, you've got the guys that still want to buy the Studebaker. <laughs> and you know, so my challenge was finding the early adopters on my sales side at the same time that we were doing the engineering development. And, okay. and it takes a little bit of time. So you had to build a whole, you had to build the whole sales infrastructure for this product with Decon, correct? That is correct, yes. So are you saying you ran that in parallel? So first you had to get the validation of the engineering community, but you also had to find your actual buyer and- yes. And who was your primary target there? Glazers. Glazers, glazing subcontractors. Right. The thing about the glazing subcontractors uh, is they were visible mm -hmm. in the sense that you could find out where they are. And um, they were out there and they were easy to find, um, not necessarily all the time easy to approach. And then we, I had to sort of locate the, the glazing contractors that we're willing to try somebody new based on a lot of different things, you know, value, price, all those things. So that's kind of how that got started. And yes, I had to develop a sales force across North America to be able to promote our product, which is my primary function at that time. Yeah. So uh, were you able to actually win uh, the approval? Well, this sounds challenging to me. So were you able to actually get some folks on board in the buying community before all the engineers were on board or did you have to get both at the same time? Actually, the way it works in many cases with the glazing industry, they actually hold the risk and the profit loss on that anchor channel. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in a sense, they really are the ones that can choose who and how and why they want to buy an anchor channel. So the early adopters were those that said, you know what, I have to make the decision here. I can ask the engineer that I'm working with to look at your valve, look at their calculations, look at their software package, get them approved because I want to use Jordal. And that's how it got started. Mm -hmm. That kind of combination of an engineering firm that said, yeah, okay, this makes sense. Oh, and by the way, okay, I've got one of my clients that wants to use Jordal. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that then. So it was that combined uh, partnership between a number of people that said, okay, let's give this Jordala an opportunity and see what they can do. That's, I mean, and we certainly uh, were one of those companies who, you know, have felt the pressure of, okay, here's a client, a glazing sub, they've got a new product 
and they're going to come and say, I need you guys to engineer this. Tell me if it's yeah. going to work. And that included Jordal. Um, so uh, can you describe for those in our audience that still are like, what in the heck are these guys talking about? Can you describe what a Jordal anchor channel is? What does it look like? How do, can you describe that without drawing a picture? Okay, so th this is um, okay. I, I, I <laughs> uh, allow me to sort of do a little elaboration here. So, um, you know, an anchor channel in itself is really a, a piece of steel shaped in a U with lips on it, right? It's a U channel. Mm -hmm. And then um, it has anchors on the back of it that anchor into concrete. I mean, it's a concrete embedment. It goes into a, into a, a, a form or a frame before the concrete is poured. And then you have, once it's poured, then you have a, a, a T-bolt that fits exactly into that channel, which then passes the anchor from supplied by the glazer that sends the anchors to the mullion, which is, of course, is the wall. And that in its simplest form is, is what it is. It's an embedment that allows you to hang your wall off the concrete. <laughs> the interesting story about that, John, is that it's not really a social setting conversation. <laughs> people, people uh, you know, I go to a social setting, hey, Sean, what do you do? I'm in sales, but what do you sell? Well, I start telling them something like that and their eyes start glazing over, right? And you can see them looking out the other way to see who can they go talk to next. They don't I love it. About. But it, 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 something kind of came in my mind that I thought to myself, there's a term that we use in our industry, and uh, it's called, if you call it, skinning the building. Mm -hmm. And I've heard it before. Have you heard that one before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I thought to myself, well, what, what, what does it exactly mean? And so I'm trying to think about how I can explain to to people who have no idea about construction or anything uh, what I do. And it, it, the way I actually pictured it and, and explained it is to somebody is, you know what? If you look at any one of those magnificent buildings in any one of our cities, they're built much the same way you and I are. They have a skeleton and they have a skin. And us as, as people, our skin is, a, is a, a attached to our skeleton with connective tissues. So I just you know, I say, you know what? What I sell is a building is built much the same way you and I are. It has a skeleton, a steel and concrete structure, and it has a skin which is that glass, that beautiful facade, facade that you see when you see the building. And um, I say, you know what, our industry, we actually call it skinning the building. And our company, Jordal, designs, manufactures, and engineers the connection systems that attach the skin to the building. Well, I really like that. Uh, you're, the connect, you're, you're the connecting tissue. That's the it. The building. Joints and fascia and all that stuff. Uh, that's... I was glazing over when you were trying to describe the channel, by the way. So that was far more interesting. I'm ready to buy. Let me go get you another drink and tell me more. You know, I, I like to say to a glazer, don't trust your skin to anybody else, but Jordal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as I always say, treat your skin with Jordal. As I always say here and to recruits, I say, what could be more interesting? What could be more fascinating than working on the defining architectural component of the building the yes the aesthetic the you know we don't know each other by seeing an x-ray of our bones because we'd look about the same we know each other by how our our body is skinned and the same thing with the building right yeah that's a great explanation i really like that um so why are these devices important what what should architects engineers who don't deal with them, designers, owners, what should they know about it? Why is it important? It sounds like a pretty important deal if it's the connective components between the skin and the skeleton. Yeah, well, you know what? Every building's different. And, and realistically, not every building is uh, suited for an anchor channel embed. I mean, there's a number of reasons you would use them, but probably the, one of the, I mean, Unitized curtain wall is the primary use for an embed in construction. Why? Because the wall goes up quick and it's done in sections and people can see that they can get their building up a lot faster. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that, that they would use anchor channels. The second reason is, you know, as, 
as buildings buildings are more and more value engineered, um, you got concrete that's thin. You got all sorts of these implements in the concrete. Maybe we don't want to be drilling into our building or, or, or all these different things that we might have to do. So, so we want to make sure that we've got a component in that concrete that's stable, is set, that we can hang our curtain wall off of. And of course, from a glazier point of view, it's um, the, the adjustability to be able to be able to adjust your your wall and your connection or, or your seams and everything so that it fits by using that lateral positioning of the of the T-bolt and the anchor channel. Yeah, that's really good. You know, I, I know as a structural engineer that, you know, we say where the rubber meets the road. You and I were talking about this. Actually, Charles Clift, who's now retired, you know, he was an early mentor of mine indirectly when I was at PPG and when I was at MK. And I remember him talking about the different redundancies we could count on in member analysis and framing. Um, you know, there's some some give and take there at times, but the anchor is going to see the reaction. And yes. that reaction is going to go into the bolts that attach to this embedded device. And if that embedded device is properly engineered, we're good. But if it's not, or if there's problems with the concrete or yeah. other other things, we've got a problem, right? We do have a problem. Our, our, you know, one of the biggest things in for the anchor channel in terms of somebody going to install it is getting it in that right position. John, you do the big job of making sure it's going to work. And then, and then our end, we got to do as much as possible to help the glazier make sure it gets in the right place. Yeah, well said. And the glazier isn't always setting the embed, are they? Oftentimes, it's the contractor. That is correct. You are correct there. In fact, the glazier is not even on site. Yeah, I told you, I spoke to a client this week where we're on the last six conditions of over a year of field fixes that one of my other colleagues did. Um, and uh, he said that there were 6,500 embedded devices and over 600 of them were set so far off that they had to come up with extended anchors and drill in conditions in the field, which really can slow a glazer down. I'm sure we've all got stories like that. It's getting better uh, as I think more and more anchor channels are being adapted into the market and there's an understanding of, of their importance, but also the understanding of it's, it's a win-win for everybody right up to the general contractor if these things are in the right place. Because if they're not and they're doing field fixes, it slows the whole job down. It's not good for anybody. So there's a, there's, it's becoming better in that sense. And from the all side, we try and offer you know setting tabs, different types of positioning devices that allow them to lock them in place. So no matter if they step on them or pour, that they are locked in place. So you have noticed over time that the quality of placement has gotten better? Well, I think, yes, I have noticed that. But I also think um, in terms of getting into details now, especially with the, the when we have the blockouts where everything's into a self-contained unit, the self-contained unit really helps set that embed and we don't have any problems at all. Very, very rare, other than this concrete consolidation underneath the anchors where we've got a field fix. I see. One of the things I want to ask you about, we've talked about why they're important and uh, what they are. Um, one of our challenges has been with post-tensioned concrete slab structures because you've got the, the post-tensioning cables and devices. Um, have you guys had any issues or do you work through any special applications or issues when it comes to post-tension structures and your strut? Well, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a placement within the post-tension cables that can always cause a problem, especially if we have to start putting uh, other, other added um, uh, pieces to the channel, like long rebar tails. Yeah. If there's a shear issue, in other words, you know, this is all about, our business is a lot about edge distance, as you know, John. Mm -hmm. um, everybody wants to get as close to the edge as possible. If it's top of slab, it shows the, the, the connection. Um, but the, the closer you get to the edge of the slab, the bigger the embed has to be. So um, we always seem to work around it, but there is always that concern that the bigger the embed, the more concerned they are about a confrontation with PT cables or rebar or anything else that, that they're going to have in that concrete. So yeah. our, our intent is always to make the smallest embed possible to not add any more to the confinement that's already there in that concrete. Yeah, that's good. I want to ask you two more questions before we move on. I've got some questions that about sales and managing sales, but I want to ask you, um, how has the uh, product approval 
um, code requirement landscape changed over the last 10 years for you in terms of compliance and having to meet tested standards? Yeah, that's a good question, John. In the, in the beginning, even when we brought, we're into the market, there was really no broad-based approval that was out there for, for anchor channels. So uh, Helfen had theirs and we had ours and, you know, you work through that. But as that was going on, there was development in the, the you know, the, the universal board of ICC standards. And what's happened since then is now there is an ICC standard for anchor channels and T-bolts and their values in concrete. Okay. And, and those standards are now all adhered to by anybody who wants to be in the anchor channel business. And do you have any special tested compliances in cities like city of Los Angeles or in regions like South Florida or New York City? Anything special there? Or do you just have to meet the provisions of ICC? Yeah, you need in, on the West Coast, because it's seismic, there's only one channel that can be used there. Not one. I mean, one style that would be a tooth channel mm -hmm. because of the lateral movement. So that's like the shot, the shark's teeth in it, both yeah. on the bolt. And then so. So that is all ICC approved. So that's an automatic approval. In the city of LA, you also have to have a structural welding approval and LARR approval. So, um, but that's, once you have ICC, those things are just kind of an automatic and that's all in place now. And final question on that. Uh, does Jordal have uh, technical support internally, uh, engineering, to help uh, bridge the gap between the glazing sub and the professional engineer record? Yes, we have in-house engineers and we have field structural engineers. And their idea is to support if there's an issue in the field or support either an in-house glazer who's got their in-house engineering or uh, uh, you know engineering consultants mm -hmm. and window consultants. So yes, we have that. Okay. so. You appealed to the buying community, glazing subcontractors, and thank God for glazing subcontractors. And yes. I, I think we should say, we could also say exterior wall trade subcontractors, because there's a very holistic element now to, to bundling the facade into one exterior wall subcontractor, EWSC. Right. But what about the architect community? Do you still find you have a need to um, provide uh, information and uh, substance and background to architects to help specify your product or does that not really enter into it in our experience we have found that the architect again i'm just generalizing of course mm -hmm. um, to any architects that might be in your your audience but in general the architect just wants their building to look like they designed it mm -hmm. and you figure out how you're going to put that wall on that building now we do have from time to time some architects that do want to see what the contractor is using for an embed. But I guess usually it's pretty much left up to the glazier to understand how this wall's got to look when it gets put up and this building's going to look. And that's their job. And the architect basically may oversee it. But I, I, I rarely do run into an architect that has uh, requested information on the anchor channel. Okay. Do you have a mass? Do you have a master spec or anything? If somebody wants it, you know something to incorporate into concrete embeds or in a in this in a CSI format, or you don't even need to worry about that. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that question a little bit for me, please. So, do you have a like a master spec that that talks about um, channels, concrete embed devices? Uh, that would show their material specification, their performance capabilities, you know, minimum requirements, something an architect could put in their, in their CSI spec format that they could add to their, their spec. Do you have anything like that? Not in general, not like the way you laid that out. I mean, we have different design methods and different design criteria, but not, I don't think in the way you laid it out. Do you think that's something we should be looking at? Uh, I don't know. I, I know many folks have for their products, a master spec or a standard spec, but I know the consultants, us included, all of them 
of substance have a section about concrete embed devices where we where we would define you know a health and a jordal or equivalent you know what i'm saying hilti etc um no that that's really good um i i always say one client i was consulting with i said we want to we want to educate the glazing community on the value of this product and we want to inform the architect community on the capabilities and why it deserves to be specified with their senior technical people. It's just a, just a, one approach. Uh, that's a, that's a very good uh, insight for me, John. Thank you. Oh, thank Yeah, you're welcome. Well, um, for those, we may have put asleep already that person at the party. It's funny whenever, sorry, it's, sorry, sorry, sorry to your audience for that. No, no, we could talk for two hours on the nuances of embeds here. But uh, to your point, my wife who listens to this when it's produced, um, somebody will come up at a gathering or a party or a social event and they'll say, and we're talking, so what do you do? And I'll go, I used to go into great detail. Uh, and now I'll go, I, ask her. She'll be like, no, no. I'm like, no, it's just ask her, please. <laughs> it's far more interesting when yeah. she's, and yeah. she'll say something like you said, you know those cool glass buildings? Mm -hmm. He makes them so you, that glass doesn't fall on your head. There you go. That's <laughs> what they relate to. Brilliant. And I'm like, and I'm like, but, 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 and they're like, oh, that's cool. Next topic, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, John, excuse me. I got to get another cocktail. <laughs> exactly. You want, yeah, exactly. That's so funny. So um, I want to shift because I really don't want to ignore your experience in sales in managing sales, that is a, a particular skill set. Uh, one of my friends um, who is a marketing and sales guy said, you know, he discovered that um, while it can be taught, in his opinion, as he interfaced for years and years and years in different markets, that for every 20 people that could do, he would say there's probably one person who can really sell to the value proposition. And he said, if selling is your skill, pursue the rarer skill. He said, if you can do and sell, if you can pursue selling. And I really liked what he said, not to make, you know, Zig Ziglar says, well, everyone in the world is a salesman. You know, his whole spiels when he was alive, he talked about Columbus was a salesman. You know, there's a great spiel there. So I don't want to minimize that everybody in some point is selling something to their colleagues or to their family or to the world, but you make a living in sales and it's a special skill. So, um, you know, I, this background about sales and being a rare skill, what's, what's the difference between selling directly and managing those who sell? Okay. So when I'm managing things, who sell the first thing you want to build is a team that, that 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 has a fit together, and I find with management, there's much many more decisions to be made. Uh, there's much more direction that needs to be given. Uh, organization in terms of how I'm how I'm managing the time with the different sales reps and, and getting in front of them, and then us getting in front of the customers. Um, you are dealing with some personalities at that point when you're just selling for yourself. It's you're just out on your own. So you're dealing with some personalities, all good personalities, but understanding how to work with them. Mm -hmm. That's really important so that we're all working together and getting the best out of each other. And, um, so when you, and that all, that, that whole makes that whole team concept. So there's a lot more involved in terms of how you run your day than just going out and selling for yourself. Do you still have to, do you still have direct sales responsibilities yourself or do you have enough of a team where you're able to manage the team and just create approval uh, situations, uh, yeses and nos and things like that? Well, I like to stay fresh, John. I think it's important that I don't lose my sense of the customer. So I, I do like to present myself either with the rep or in other areas where I'm actually part of the process of uh, you know the encouraging people and whatever to be able to buy from us either with a rep or, or on my own. There's a couple of areas that I have as my own sales territory, mm -hmm. and it helps me stay in tune and focus with uh, what's what's going on with the customers in the industry. Interesting. I was talking to my barber. Uh, shout out to Sales Barber Shop in Hudson. He's got 
six barbers in total, him and five others. I said, what, why are you still cutting? I'm glad you're still cutting, but why? He said almost the same thing. He said, you know what? I have to be connected to the work. I like to be present. I like to keep, you know, a clientele and it helps me then to stay connected and yeah, I, I, I like that comment. So do you have any nuggets or, I mean, I'm not putting you on the spot here because you can say no, but do you have any nuggets of wisdom? You know, sales can be pretty wide open, as you said. Um, do you have any nuggets you've learned along the way on how to communicate the value proposition with consistency when others are going out there? It Communicating the message, having consistency and clarity around the product. Um, uh, even as far as scripting, if you will, is there anything special you've learned or you have to do that helps leverage those salespeople to the benefit of your product? Actually, you mentioned the word scripting and that's still an important word in our industry. We make it our own, but when you mention the word message, one thing that I think is important for, um, at least in my sense, is that the message has to be consistent with everyone. So that we're all saying the same thing, and then when we have different objections we're dealing with, we all have this. We all have the same idea and uh, answers to what those objections are. And, and objections are good, of course, they're valid. So uh, the challenge we face is always making sure that we have the same message, and that message message is being conveyed from the customer's point of view and not ours. We don't necessarily have the best product unless the customer feels that way. And we might not necessarily have the best service until we've proven to the customer we've done that. And that's the message that we have to convey from a customer's perspective is my thoughts on that. If that seems reasonable. No, that's very good because others have mentioned the same thing. You know, it's really all about the customer, I guess, in a sense, Sean, I think that the customer is providing proof of concept every day, every week when they continue to provide feedback to us on the quality of our service or product, whether they think it can be improved or whether they just want more of it, you know, proof of concept is used a lot, right? In, well, how can I get this new product to the market? But I think we're being validated every day or not, right? Oh, absolutely. I always, I like this little saying I have, I carried it for many years. I said, if the customer says it, it's true. If I say it, they doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> so my job is to help the customer say what I say is true. <laughs> And <laughs> what the, the customer is the customer Absolutely. And, the, and the customer's feedback is always true to their reality. Absolutely. I always say the customer isn't always right, but the customer is the customer exactly. and they need to be treated and acknowledged that way. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So <laughs> you're, you're really talking about value selling because you're saying the message has to be consistent. How, how many sales people reps do you manage in your space 12 12 and are those internal and external or all external well we work in two ways john we have our own uh uh internal sales force but we also use a number of independent sales representatives okay so these as you know are people who may have a glass line an aluminum line um you know my my jordan anchor channel line um a skylight line anything like that we, we tend to we tend to to partner ourselves with people that are in our industry selling to those those end users i see so you have to do you have to then you have to treat them the same way as your internal in terms of messaging right consistency yes. yeah yeah and i i I, I actually tell my independent sales reps this and we have a good laugh about it. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I know with my own salespeople, I know exactly where they're, what they're going to be doing that day with our independents. And these guys are very good professional people and they do a really good job, but they've got 10 other jobs or product lines they might be thinking of selling that day. So a couple of parts of my job with working with these great independent reps is I wake up, I got a, two sales jobs with them. One, I got to sell Jordell, and two, I got to sell them on selling Jordell. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Never a dull moment. That is really good. So just like the uh, the retail guy where you were really selling profit, you've got to sell your, your independent reps on two things, right? That's yeah. really good. Yeah. I really like that. Their time's money, and I got to see if I can get a chunk of that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, let's... 
let's just take this moment because I'm thinking about him. Let's just take this moment to give a shout out to Shane Walsh because he's one of your guys and he's great. Oh. He's great with your product line, isn't he? He's he he is a true salesperson. He's a relationship builder. We didn't touch on that, but we all know that. One thing about the sales world is if there's still something about a relationship, Shane is a true relationship builder. And he does one of the things that's very important uh, for any salesperson is if there's something isn't right, he makes sure it is right. And um, he's he just does a fantastic job for us. For, for anybody he works for, he's doing a fantastic job. And uh, he continues to be our top sales rep year after year. Is that right? Yep. And yep. he's got and he's got a great accent too. Oh, doesn't he? The Irish. <laughs> the Irish. Oh, uh, yeah, he's good. Um, so, sales has a lot to do with communication, correct? Yes. So, I ask all of my guests this question: How important is communication, in your opinion, as a contributor to your success, both you personally and to your organization? How valuable is communication? Communication is, at its core, the most valuable thing that we can have next to our product and our support. And what I find interesting today, John, is there's so many different ways to communicate with people. It's, it's changed a bit. We have LinkedIn to communicate. We have emails to communicate. We have phone. We have text. How, we have all these different ways of communicating, uh, advertisements of magazines. So the communication process can be very, very detailed in terms of how we approach it. But in terms of communicating directly, if we wanted to talk about that with a customer, I think the idea there is to just the simplicity of it. What are we trying to do here together? And how and communicating that message by understanding what they're looking for and what their problems are and what the solution is. So my communication has to follow directly into fitting what their needs are. Hmm. and tailoring it to that, if that, that type of communication. So obviously it takes a knowledge of your product and, so, and knowledge of the industry and what your customer uh, is trying to accomplish. There certainly are multiple channels through which to communicate. These oh, it's days. unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And uh, I even, even prior to this, you know, I, I, I texted you and said, I might need another three or four minutes. And you responded, but you were already on the Zoom, which is a virtual meeting. We're doing this on a virtual meeting. Right. And uh, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, one question then, I, I don't know if you had a time to think about this. Do you have any, uh, you, you see a trend you mentioned earlier about, you know, better, better clarity and how embeds are placed and such, but are there any hot topics, any passion points, any buttons, like things that you see, things that that are a problem, um, anything about the industry that you're like, you know, if I had something I could talk about, I'd love to talk about this. Anything like that you want to talk about? Well, in general, I mean, in general, to me, facades are good, right? <laughs> facades are my life in a, in, a, in a sense. I'm passionate about them. Um, you know, um, Certainly for me, uh, in terms of products I sell, I don't have a lot to do with, with energy efficiency, but I really see things going that way in terms of everything we do now is talking about, you know, energy efficiency and how, you know, remember a few years ago, we talked about the battle of the wall. Yeah. Uh, hey, we got to all get more energy efficient. And, um, um, you know, I, it's a constant thing in the back of my mind, I guess, is how do I, am I affected by that? Not affected by that? Mm -hmm. Um the other thing that I find very interesting, uh, at least with glass, is the creativity that, that we see out there in terms of design. I uh, happened to come by, uh, Amazon just announced their, um, it's another phase of their uh, headquarter two in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And that, that new building they're building there, check it out if you can. I just, I made a note of it here. It's called the, uh, the Helix. It's this huge spiral glass. It's the spiral. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, and that's glass. And it's got yeah. the garden, it's got yeah. the landscape terraces. Yeah. yeah. So when I see that, I know that's a challenge for embeds. <laughs> it's a beautiful. <laughs> it's it a, is beautiful. So the creativity, beautiful coming from the architects and from these developers is quite amazing. It is a very creative industry. Yeah, um, very creative. Love it. Well, you know, I think that Amazon Helix would be um, 
maybe a distant offshoot from the sphere. You're familiar with yeah. the sphere in yeah. Seattle. Yeah. And yeah. you know, our firm did with Walters and Wolf Rufus 14, 1921 Rufus named after Mr. Bezos's favorite Corgi, um, his dog Rufus, but, um, and they're building in Bellevue now too, and they're building in Virginia. So they just keep gobbling up space. And I would yeah. say almost every one of their buildings, while there's repetition to it, there's a signature on every one of their yeah. buildings. Yeah. And it continues. And Microsoft has a whole different approach, but there's a signature on their buildings as well yeah. as Facebook and others. Um, that's really good. Uh, so you talked about direction of the industry, et cetera. Have you seen any trends? We touched on this a little yesterday in our pre-show. Any trends in COVID? Any impacts from COVID remote work um, on your sales force or your customers' accessibility, the way you have to communicate? Um, anything you think that'll continue or is that too hard to predict? You know, I... I, yeah, it is very difficult to predict. Um, you know, you hear, I mean, these are factual stories. In the, in the midst of all this, people were moving out of the cities. Mm -hmm. They're moving back to their homes and they were working remotely. Much easier, let's say, for a tech company or a banking industry versus somebody like me that's in manufacturing. We've got a plant, we have to have people in there. We're considered an essential business. That's all fine. Now, uh, whether all these people will come back into the cities I don't know. I don't know where it's going. I mean, um, the, you have all these buildings built there. I, I believe, correct me, John, but I think Microsoft had just finished their building in Seattle and there's nobody in it. Um, well, so Microsoft, huh? yeah, Microsoft is building uh, a large, they have a large campus renovation, campus upgrade separated into four villages with four different uh, general contractors, CMs in the area. Um, I know REI finished a headquarters in Bellevue and never moved in. They right. decided to sell it. Right. And, and uh, there were other notable companies that at the start of COVID, they just said, you know what, we're buying ourselves out of this. We're, we're going to stay where we are. So yeah, there has been a shift. Has it affected how you've been able to communicate with customers um, and how long it takes to close deals? It, it has, uh, John, for the reason that um, everything now is done by Zoom, or certainly has been in the last year, Zoom webinars, that type of thing. And it really slows down the decision-making process for everybody. It's just not me, it's, it, it's, it's a trickle-down effect, right? We're all, we're all trying to work with this situation. And the, the idea of getting face-to-face -face with somebody and getting over a set of drawings and just getting to it um, I mean, technology is great, but there's just some times when that person to person can really make things happen a lot quicker. So we're, we're trying to work our way through that and, and develop it. We're doing the same thing with our sales and marketing, you know, improving our webinars and things like that. But I think you had a good comment too yesterday in our pre-show in terms of the people are human and they want to be together. Yeah, they do. I mean, we're cultural we're um, societal beings, you know, relationship beings. And uh, I mentioned on the last show that that out of the top 10, the top two predictors of longevity are social connectivity and the number of friends you have. Oh, yeah. Genetic, genetics and exercise and food and all those things certainly weigh in importantly, but the thread all societies have with, with longevity of their, uh, their people, the is uh, heavy connectivity amongst multiple generations and, and such, very, very familial. So that's interesting. We also were talking about, I mean, people can throw out whatever ideas they want, but I, I conjectured, who knows? There could be a complete return to cities and everything's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or one could really say, we're gonna go to secondary and tertiary locations where there's better real estate prices. People are yeah. closer to their homes, they're gonna build more two, three, four, six story campus style buildings with a lot of square footage to give more room for people when they are inside, which will create a lot of concrete and a lot of embeds and a lot of square footage of exterior wall systems. And a lot of engineering. <laughs> and a lot of engineering. <laughs> and all the data centers, you know, there's a yeah, lot the of- data centers are huge, huge. Thermal, thermal work and waterproofing yeah. work because no matter how high tech we are, yes, 
still can't put your system and your people in a tent long term. Yeah. You got to yeah. be inside bricks and mortar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well said, John. So, Sean, we're um, actually, believe it or not, we've we've we're just about at the end here. It's been over an hour. And um, I want to make sure that we get a chance to to close up in a way that um, is there any anything uh, that you think has been a contributor to your success? I, I always like to ask people, do you have any mindsets or routines or patterns that you that help you stay centered professionally and personally that you do um, that that you find have been helpful? I've always been an avid reader. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of things with that, at least in my case. Um, because I do so much in the written word now, reading does help me in my communication in, in the written sense. It, it does help me too verbally. I, I do exercise. I, I think, you know, certainly an exercise routine or stretching, nothing too heavy. I'm not out there. I'm not going to be the Hulk anytime soon, but just some type of regime of sort of some fresh air and some, a little bit of fitness. And um, like you said earlier, trying to make sure that I'm, you know, connecting to the community, staying connected to some friends and family. And, um, you know, just in general, um, also trying to, <laughs> not get too stressed out on the job, <laughs> working through some of that and, and balancing that out a little bit. I'm trying, you know, I guess it's a little, I, I don't want to sound like this is overused, but I, I do think that for all of us, and I, I'm, I'm speaking for all of us in terms of, you know, putting some type of balance in it all. <laughs> yeah. When we come up with the de-stress program for people in the glass and glazing facade yeah. world, we'll go on the road and make that presentation. Yeah. That'll be yeah. our living. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'll be the first student. And then we'll go and sell. <laughs> so who's going to win the Stanley cup this year? Well, you know what? How about the Las Vegas golden Knights? Really? They seem to be on a tear. looks like Tampa might be a little, little slower this year. Uh, Edmonton Oilers could be a real strong, strong uh, finisher if, if they get hot. It's really quite interesting. The format's going to be a little different. The challenge with the format this year, John, is depending on you could have two really good teams playing each other. And, you know, either one of them could have won the Stanley Cup, but one's got to lose. And that's just in the, in the preliminary. It's got nothing to do with the Stanley Cup. So it's going to be fun. I'm just happy they're playing. Um, yeah. You know, being, being from Canada, you know, it's like I, everywhere I went when I came to the United States, there was a baseball field. Well, everywhere you go in Canada, there's a hockey rink. So I kind of grew up with it. So that was a great question for me. Thanks. Yeah, no. Is, are there any sleepers that you think could uh, could surprise people? Toronto Maple Leafs. They're pretty good, but I don't know if they have enough, but they could. <laughs> it's been a while since I believe, uh, correct me, but I've, I, a long time since the Canadian teams won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't have that fresh and handy. Um, but pretty sure. I'm still disappointed that there's no NHL team in Cleveland. It just was never a big enough market. But I did go to the you know when the Cleveland Barons were part of the WHL. I went to the old Cleveland Arena, which some folks may remember. It listening, and they didn't have glass, Sean. They had screens. Oh, geez. Metal screens <laughs> and they would rattle and shake. And that, you know, you hoped you didn't get a seat behind a column. It, it fit about 9,000 or 10,000 people and they would fly up against the boards and you could just hear the grunts and groans and yes. bangs and the screens would shake back and forth. It was, that's, that's the way to enjoy hockey. You're right in it. We had a good time. In fact, we went down there for stick day. My, my, there's about 12 or 13 boys on my street and a half a dozen of us somehow a parent took us down there. It was stick day cheap. And we all came back with hockey sticks. So we all laced up our used skates. We went out of my friend's pond and we put some grill covers at each end as goals and tied a newspaper to our shins. And we started slapping away at the puck. What a, what a great way to pass the time. Uh, yeah. that, uh, great. Thank you for sharing that. Brings back a lot of memories from me. Not so sure about the paper shin pads, but. <laughs> well, that's all we had. Well, I think one guy had some catcher's shin pads that he could use. So we made yeah, him play yeah. goalie. We yeah. made him play goalie. And when the puck went down to the thin end of the ice, the pond was probably four feet deep. 
we drew straws to see drew like who was going to go down and who could skate fast enough to get the puck and not fall oh, in the water. Hilarious. I yeah. can picture the whole thing, John. Yeah. That was the seventies in the snow belt. You'd have yeah. to shovel off the ice yeah. to have enough room to play. Yeah. So no, no, very well. That's a fun time. Well, Sean, it has been a great pleasure um, to have you. Thanks for your time. Anything you want to say before we sign off? Well, no, thank you, John. Thanks to your audience. Really appreciated uh, being here and um, appreciate the learning experience and the chance to share. And thank you very much. Uh, greatly appreciated. Um, great opportunity. To oh, it's it. great to have you. Uh, you did say you and a colleague or colleagues are going to be at the glass show, right? In Atlanta. Yeah, we're going to have an exhibit there and uh, really looking forward to that. It's been, uh, been a long wait. And then you also said uh, World of Concrete. You guys will be at World of Concrete. Yeah, World of Concrete, uh, June 8th to 10th, Las Vegas, three days of it. This is a great sign. Wow, that is really yeah. good. Yeah, that's going to be, a, I think there's going to be a collective euphoria just in people being able to get back together. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, um, the Glass Show, World of Concrete. That's all good. Well, again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your time. I wish you all the best. Uh, we'll circle back around. We'll be in touch. And uh, thanks to the audience. We will uh, catch you on the next podcast. Have a great day.